We are continuing in Colossians, so if you brought your Bibles, which hopefully you did, you can turn there. If you don't have one, there's a Bible in the pew rack in front of you there. And we are continuing in chapter 1 of Colossians. Kind of changes things with all the kids in here for singing, doesn't it? It's good. I like it. Yeah. So, over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at um, what Paul has written in Colossians about the person and work of Jesus Christ, and we learned many important things about the person of Christ, who He is, the most important of which uh, is that He is preeminent. He is first, ahead of everything and everyone. He holds the position, uh, if you remember, of preeminence being the preeminent one, whether a person believes it or not. That's who Jesus is, okay? As Christians, we have been given the gift of faith, and therefore, we do see Christ as the preeminent one. So, we praise God for that. For without Him opening our eyes, we would not see Jesus that way. And we should continually give Him that place of honor in our lives because, as we were reminded, He is God Himself. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, Paul says. Last week, we started in on the work of Christ and saw that He has reconciled sinners to Himself through His work on the cross. The blood of the cross has brought about peace between God and the repentant person. And we talked about why we need peace with God, because without Christ, we are at enmity with God. We are actively opposed to God without uh, the work of Christ on the cross, bringing about peace for those who repent and trust Christ as their Savior. And uh, this has changed us from what we were as Christians. We've been changed from what we were. Paul described describing us as those who were once alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds, he says. It's what we were. Uh, we saw that in verse 21, and, he, and we have been changed. We have, we have been reconciled. And we asked the question last week, at the end of the lesson last week, we asked, why has Christ reconciled sinners? But we didn't answer the question. We, we saved that for, for tonight. So that's what we're looking at tonight is why, why has Christ reconciled sinners? So let's open with a word of prayer and then we'll get started. Father in heaven, we are so grateful to be here tonight. Um, Lord, to come gather together as your people, Lord, to open up your word to hear what you have said. We pray, Lord, that every time we do that, whether it be in the gathering of believers at church or alone in our own homes, whenever we open your word and read your word, Lord, that you would give us right understanding of it, that we would not deviate from your word and its truth. Now, Father, I pray you give us wisdom, help us tonight, teach us through your spirit as, as we read what you have said, as we discuss these things, and we thank you, Lord, for the person and work of Jesus Christ, for without him we would not be reconciled. We, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Colossians 1, and tonight we'll be looking at verses 22 and 23. Let's read those uh, in your Bibles. Colossians 1, 22 and 23. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh 
by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So here we see that the reconciliation was accomplished in the body of flesh that the Father had prepared for Jesus and in the death of that body. Uh, Or as verse 21 put it, by the blood of the cross. And since the Bible says that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin, the author of Hebrews writes, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. That's Hebrews 10.5. Hebrews 10.5. So, question. So, we get to the question that we asked last week that we didn't answer. Why? Why did Christ reconcile sinners according to verse 22? If you look at that, you tell me, why did Christ reconcile sinners according to verse 22? Okay, absolutely, right? Why? In order to present you. Who is you? The church. Right? We could say it's us individually, but we are all members of the body. We are all members of the church. Ultimately, it is the church. Right? Why did he reconcile sinners in order to present you, the church? What? As holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's the answer to the question. That is why Christ reconciled sinners, that they would be presented. And the phrase that we see here, in order to, is a term of purpose. It is the reason. It is the designated outcome of some action. Okay, The designated outcome of the action of the work of Christ is that we could then be presented in this way. Um, it's, it is by, reconciliation by the blood of the cross. Uh, and that reconciliation was made so that the designated outcome would be a reality. Okay? Without that, it, there w- it would not be a reality. Reconciliation would not be a reality. What is the designated outcome? Again, to be presented. And there are some key aspects of this presentation that uh, we want to look at and understand tonight. And to, to present, you know, Paul uses uh, a Greek word there, and that Greek word literally means to place beside. Okay, when, when we see in our English Bibles the word present, that word that Paul used has an even deeper meaning, to place beside. But to do so with the idea of exhibiting and yielding to the disposal of another. And think about that for a minute. That we would be presented to God in this way with the idea of exhibiting and of yielding to the disposal of another. In the Greek translation of the Hebrew, which is known as the Septuagint, um, this verb is often used as a technical term for the priests placing um, an offering on the altar with the idea of surrendering or yielding up. It's also this word used in Romans 12 of how you and I are to offer or present our bodies as living sacrifices to God. And of course, with the idea of being used by Him, right, to be at His disposal, 
That's the, the goal of the life of a Christian, is to, to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice in order that God may use us to accomplish all His purposes however He sees fit. And that's the idea here of, of that word, to present. This is pleasing to God. As we, if you were to continue in that Romans 12 passage, we'd see that it's pleasing to God. And Paul says it's a spiritual act of worship to present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice. It's holy and acceptable to Him. Now back to our, our text in Colossians. Let's look more at, at who Paul is talking about on this topic of presenting. Three questions. Who's doing the presenting? What do you guys think? Who's doing the presenting in this scenario? Okay, Jesus, God, okay? Or, uh, and also who or what is being presented? We talked about it already. We are the church, right? And to whom is the presentation being made? Who is the church being presented to? Right. Specifically, to the Son of God. Right? Who's doing the presenting? God the Father. Who's being presented? The church or the bride of Christ. Who's the presentation made to? The Son of God, the bridegroom. That's the picture here is that of a father presenting a bride as a pure virgin uh, to the groom as a gift in marriage forever. Therefore, the church is often referred to as the bride of Christ. Christ being the bridegroom, the church is offered to Christ, presented to him. The Father has given the church to the Son. Also, since God is one, right? We know this, God is one. He is three persons in one. There is a reality that, and this could be hard for us to grasp sometimes, but the reality is that He is presenting the church to Himself. God is presenting the church to Himself. Now, let's look over at Ephesians 5, if you would. Turn to the left in your Bible. Ephesians 5, looking in particular at verses 25 through 27, and looking here at Christ's work uh, for the church to present her to Himself. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, "'Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her.' having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. We see those words there, so that he might present the church to himself. Okay? And this passage is often used, and rightly so, in premarital counseling to speak to husbands and wives about their future marriage and how they are to, um, and what the Bible teaches about the self-sacrificial nature of marriage. Um, but even more profoundly, this chapter in Ephesians uh, is a picture of the relationship between Christ and His church. Going further down in that passage, Paul makes this crystal clear. It's still there in Ephesians 5, if you go down to verses 31 and 32. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then Paul says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. 
he calls it a mystery and that it's profound. So we see that though we can take that and, and use it practically in our lives as husbands and wives and learn how to interact with one another and what our roles are and specifically how a husband is supposed to lay down his life for his wife, ultimately it's a picture of Christ and his work on the cross, Christ and the redemption of his bride by the blood of his cross. When will this presentation be made? Well, this is, it's described as a future event. Right? And we see a glimpse of it from John, John's vision in Revelation. Um, and he explains it like this. If you, if you want to turn there, Revelation 19, verses 6 and 7. But look how John describes this in his vision. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. What is the cry there? The marriage of the Lamb has come. This is... Is this a future event? But we're not to think that it might not happen. Some might think, well, it might not happen if this happens or that happens, or if I act this way or act that way. This is a done deal for those who are in Christ. This, this is a future event, but it's a, it's a present reality. We can view it as such, as a present reality. We are waiting for it, not hoping it will happen, knowing it will happen, and we are waiting for it. And Paul says here in our text that the church is presented before God, back in our Colossians text, presented before God. And that word that Paul uses there that's been translated as before is used only three times in the New Testament, and and it means this, which is kind of significant. It means right down in the eye of God, okay? Okay? Before God, in His sight. This is what God sees. One commentator said this is describing a searching, penetrating gaze. Another describes what's happening here under the searching eyes of God by saying, omniscient eyes searching us are unable to find fault. I I thought about that statement for a minute and and. I really like that statement, not because we should somehow be puffed up as if God finds no fault because of me. He finds no fault because of what he sees, because what he sees is the righteousness of Christ, those who are in Christ. This is a wonderful thing. That that really is true. Omniscient eyes searching us are unable to find fault, but it's because of Christ. The two other places that that is used are Ephesians 1, 4, where it says, even as he chose us in him, Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in his sight. Holy and blameless before those searching, omniscient eyes. Omniscient, all-knowing, right? There's nothing hidden from God. We can't hide anything from God. He sees everything. The, other, the, the last time that that word is used is Jude 1.24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. And notice here the sense that 
This is, again, like I said before, it's a done deal because God can keep you in this state and for this purpose. This is absolute. It's not a maybe. And the only way that you and I are righteous and blameless is if God sees us covered in the righteousness of Christ. It's the only way. It's never something that a Christian can boast about in, in themselves, but only to boast in the glory of Christ. Well, by what transaction is the church presented before God as holy, blameless, and above reproach? Those are the three things that Paul listed out there. What is that transaction? There's a word starting with I that describes this transaction where we get the righteousness of Christ. Do you guys remember what that word is? Imputation, right. Imputation, the doctrine of imputation, the holiness of uh, blamelessness and perfection of the sinless life of Christ is imputed to the believer. It is counted to your account as if you, you did it. But imputation also is double. You know, there's a thing called double imputation. It's an exchange. So that begs the next question. We get the righteousness of Christ, but where does our sin go? To Him. Right. Our sin gets put on Christ, the sinless Lamb of God. The believer's sinfulness and guilt, uh, death, the death that we've earned, the target on our backs of the wrath of God, that all gets put on Christ. It gets imputed to the sinless Savior. And this is done at the point of salvation. When a person comes to saving faith in Christ, each believer is seen positionally by God in this way. He sees you in the righteousness of Christ. We're not actually righteous. Okay? We didn't become righteous by our acts of goodness or following the law, but we are declared by God to be righteous. Think about what the prophet Isaiah said about this transaction, and meditate on it. He said in Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. It's a wonderful, gracious truth about what God sees when we are presented before Him through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's writing about, the work of Christ. This is what it accomplished. Made it so that positionally, right now, every Christian has been made righteous before God, declared righteous through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Not because we earned it. This is, this is a judicial action God has declared you and I as justified in Christ. How do we know that? How do we know that to be true? Well, 1 Corinthians 6.11 says, But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's how we know. The Scripture tells us 
It's the only way a person will ever be justified. There is, there is no other way. Though every other religious system tries, um, all their writings or plans or whatever for how to be made right with God always include them doing something or being a certain way or achieving something, and they'll never make it. They'll never make it. It's only through Christ. It's never, ever by any work of their own. How do we know that? How do we know that to be true from the Scriptures? Galatians 2.16, very clear, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. In that one verse, he says it three times. If it wasn't clear to us before, it should be clear to us now. Though I may sometimes forget or live my life like I'm trying to do something to get or keep my salvation, the Scripture says, I can't do that. That's not how it works. So, you see, when Paul's writing to the Colossians here, they and we, we need the work of Christ on our behalf. When Paul writes this passage to the Colossian believers, he wants them to remember that any teaching that diminishes or changes the person and work of Jesus Christ will always leave people dead in their trespasses and sins. Always. Remember, that's what they're dealing with. They're dealing with false teaching coming into the church. And it's all attacking the person and work of Christ. It's always a diminishing of the person and work of Jesus Christ. There's In those teachings and those beliefs, there is no redemption. There's no salvation. There's no presentation of a holy and blameless church before God. There's no reconciliation by the blood of the cross without the work of the one and only Son of God. Paul's intentionally putting so much focus on Christ here, being very clear about who he is and what he's done. And to to depart from that for, for these Colossian believers or those that are maybe in the congregation who haven't come to faith yet, for them to stay in that place and de- depart from this teaching about Christ, uh, it's only thing waiting for them is an eternity in hell. Paul is very serious about this. Paul can't stand by and believe it was no big deal for Christ to be diminished by false teaching and those who taught it. He couldn't very well do the opposite of what he was taught to do with these things and what he told others, especially leaders in the church, that they were to do with false teaching. Um, if you turn over to Titus chapter 1, look at, we're going to look at uh, three different verses there uh, dealing with this subject and talking about those who would teach what is false. And um, Paul's going after that here, as he does in er- pretty much everything he writes, um, and here he's dealing with that, with that same thing, people teaching false things, people upsetting whole families with, with false teaching. And what he says in Titus 1.9 is, is he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. So the person that would teach must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. It's not only so that we can that a teacher can teach what is true, 
and then not do anything with false teaching. Paul makes it clear that the teaching of what is true needs to happen, and then when what is false comes in, that teacher of what is true needs to say, that is false, and rebuke that teaching and call it out for what it is. But that is not what was happening. The false teaching was coming in, and um, in many of the churches that Paul wrote letters to, false teaching is coming in. And he keeps going after it and telling them the same things. It's necessary to, to depart from that false teaching, call it out, rebuke it, correct it. So it makes it necessary for Paul to write these letters, including this letter to, Coloss- to the Colossians, because as we said at the beginning, they were, the, the t- false teaching of the Gnostics was coming in and diminishing the person and work of Christ, and Paul is not going to stand for that. Titus 1.13 says, this testimony is true, therefore, is true about the people he's talking about. He's calling them out, and he's saying this is true about them. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. The, the goal there is correction. The goal there is that they would come around to being true, true teachers. Teach what is right. Be sound in the faith. But he doesn't skip around things. He doesn't uh, tiptoe lightly here. He says, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. If they refuse to listen and repent, um, they're proving themselves to be unreconciled, unredeemed. They're lost. They are false teachers. And then down in verse 16 in Titus 1, this is what he says about them. They profess to know God But they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So we can can never look at false teaching about Jesus as no big deal or by saying that's fine for them but not for me. I mean, I believe what the Bible says here. They teach that and that's okay for them. That can't be so. And we can understand it coming from an unbelieving world, but those who profess to be brothers or sisters in Christ, honestly, we should lovingly correct. We should lovingly seek to correct that, rebuke that, so that they may be sound in the faith. So we can't look at it as no big deal. We can't deviate from the truth about Jesus Christ. Again, that's Paul's target here in this first chapter is very specifically, and and mostly in the whole book, the whole letter here is hammering down on the truth about Jesus Christ. They have, they have forgotten. And if we do uh, deviate from the truth about Christ, and, and we're, any of us, and, and we're shown our error, then we must repent and, and come to the sound teaching about Christ. So we see in that that there's an out Right? A person that's teaching falsely could repent and, and come to Christ. But if they don't, then they're proving themselves to be unbelievers. So in Christ, we are, again, we are declared holy, blameless, and above reproach all at once at the moment of salvation. But there's now practice. There's what we've talked about before here and in our last study about the walk of a Christian, the, our daily living. Now we practice that which is already true positionally. We live it out in our lives. That is the goal for us. 
and it's called progressive sanctification. Empowered, of course, by the Holy Spirit, the believer lives out in practice the spiritual reality of their justification. Again, it's very key that we understand that this is by the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't, you know, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and grit our teeth and and just try to make things happen. We have the power of God indwelling us in His Holy Spirit. And in other words, we we become more like Christ as we learn, as we grow, as we mature in the Lord. And by doing so, we prove to be children of God. And this brings us to the next verse uh, in our text, verse 23. And after Paul says that they'll... They'll be presented to God holy and blameless and without reproach. He says this in verse 23, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. If. This verse starts out with a big if. And it gets to the subject of false conversion. Paul's dealing with the fact that not everyone who hangs around the church is saved. Not everyone who professes faith in Christ um, is indeed born again. So here he offers the people a way to know if they are truly in the church. He starts with saying the true believer continues in the faith. We all know of people who may have been coming to church for a short time or even for a long time, but... At some point, they they leave. And I don't mean that they leave and go to another church. I mean, that happens. But they remove themselves from Christian fellowship. They no longer have anything to do with the church. As we saw in our last study, the Scripture says, this is a sign that someone is not a Christian. 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. There's a reason why they go out, and God uses that to show us, to make it plain that someone was not ever truly a part of us. In spite of what they may have said, they were not. So when we look at this text in verse 23, and we look at this if-then if statement from Paul in the end of verse 22 through verse 23, what is the natural concern that can, that can arise? And we see this if-then statement. What do you guys think? What's the natural concern that can arise if you read 22 and 23 together? Okay. You begin to question your salvation for some reason, right? Why would that be? According to that verse, what are some of the things listed that it might be because of? What's that? Okay, moved away from the hope of the gospel. You know, we can begin to believe, like, we, we can see our, our struggles with ongoing sin in our life and think, I might not make it, right? If I don't continue to live right, I'll be lost. And there are plenty of groups that teach that. And that's not what this verse is teaching. 
the, one, the ones who should be afraid of this are those who are not truly believers. They will not continue in the faith, and they have much to fear. But if you are truly born again, don't mistake your struggle with sin in your life as a failure to continue in the faith, like Paul's talking about here. In fact, if, if that is a struggle, if you have a struggle with sin in your life, that's more evidence that you are a believer. Okay? You didn't struggle with sin before you were a believer. You were perfectly fine with sinning. The Christian, because you are a new creation, you, and God has put new desires in your heart, you desire to please God. You desire to be obedient to God. And when we're not, we feel that. And it is a struggle. We don't want that in our lives. But most importantly, know this. You are not the one who is keeping yourself saved. We need to understand this. You were not saved by doing good works. And you don't maintain your salvation by doing good works. Let's look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians chapter 1, and let's read verses 4 through 9, and, and listen for the assurance found in these words. 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 9. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the, revel- for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. There's assurance in those words. And what do, we, what do we learn from verses 7 and 8 there about how you'll make it? What do we learn there about how you'll make it as a Christian? There you go, right? That's the answer. It is Christ who sustains us. That word sustain means to establish or confirm or make sure. These are anchoring words. That's also the work of Christ in your Christian life. Again, the work of Christ is at the forefront of our lives. What does verse 8 say about how far you'll make it by the power of Christ? To the end. All the way to the end. Okay, and, and you will remain guiltless in the eyes of God through Christ. And according to verse 9, how can we trust this is true? How can you and I trust that this is true according to verse 9 there? God is faithful. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
Philippians 1.6. Do you, do you hear it as Christians? Do you hear the assurance of God in those words? Yeah. How about this? For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that includes you. You don't separate you if you are truly saved. So there is assurance. You don't save you. You don't keep you saved. Christ saves you and Christ sustains you all the way to the end. You see, these scriptures come alive with hope and promise for us as Christians. When we put all the weight of these promises, when we put all the weight of them squarely on the person and work of Jesus Christ, not ourselves. He is faithful. He is able. He is our strength. Believe in the true biblical Jesus Christ. And that's Paul's message to the Colossians. Cast away all that other stuff, all the things that would come against this truth about Jesus Christ and the assurance that you have in Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul says, of this I became a minister. Of what? A minister of what? The gospel. He's taking them back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's ministering the gospel to them again. We don't have time tonight to get into the next verses. Um, but the next time I'm here, that we'll, we'll continue with verse 24, which is another verse that has been taken out of context by many and turned into a doctrine that totally eviscerates the work of Christ on the cross. And so we'll look at that the next time, and, and I'm looking forward to that one. Um, so I will, I will not be here next week. Someone else will be here um, uh, teaching next week, but the week after that I'll be back and we'll get into verse 24. So let's close in prayer for tonight. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for um, your word. We thank you for these promises in your word that we've seen tonight. We thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. I pray, Father, that when we are dragged down by circumstances of life, be it the sins of others or our own sins or just difficult things that are happening, Lord, that we will keep coming back to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that all our hope would rest in that. Because no matter what happens in our lives here, nothing can take away our salvation in Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord, that we don't have to work hard to sustain our salvation because we would never be able to do it. We would fail. We thank you, Lord, that it is Jesus Christ who sustains us all the way to the end. We take great comfort in that. I pray that we would understand that more and more. We thank you, Lord, for the truth of the person and work of Jesus Christ. I pray that as we continue in this study, we would gain more and more knowledge and understanding about the impacts of the gospel in our lives. It's so deep, Lord, and we can learn, continually learn so much 
about the relationship between Jesus Christ and His bride, the church. We praise You for it, Lord. And again, we thank You for Your grace and Your mercy. We thank You for the reconciliation, the redemption that we have in our Savior. It's in His name we pray. Amen.